Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, welcome back to the OIS Podcast. We're once again going to pay a visit to the Ophthalmology Innovation Summit held last month in Chicago. Last week, our podcast featured the Google Alcon discussion about the joint venture to develop a new contact lens. This week, we're bringing in the heads of AMO, Johnson & Johnson Vision Care, Allergan, and Alcon to discuss how large companies can best grow through acquisition. I don't even think I really need to introduce this panel. If you don't know who this panel is, you're in the wrong room. So uh, let me tee up a couple, just a couple quick slides real quick. Industry consolidation, the good, the bad, the unknown. You have to figure out who here is the good, the bad, and the unknown. But I would like to say one thing. I've been sitting here all day listening to all these people, and we wouldn't have an industry if it wasn't for the likes of Gavin Herbert. Gavin, if you would stand up here, please. Let's give Gavin Herbert a big round of applause. Over 60 years ago, Gavin created a company, a little company called Allergan, and we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for people like Gavin Herbert. Thank you, Gavin, for everything you've done. So if you look at the good, you know, from a standpoint of industry consolidation, you have the ability for potential greater resource, uh, you know, to be able to really create some disruptive technologies. We've seen that. We've heard of some cases today. Uh, We have those synergistic benefits that the bankers love to call and we do in our deal models of how we put these companies together. And then, of course, you have that larger commercialization. You know, you get a larger company who has reach not just across the globe but in various segments. Sometimes when you look at the bad, you know, you disrupt that innovation cycle. And so I have some key questions for our panelists here about that. You lose institutional knowledge. How many times have we had large companies? I remember many of the companies we bought at AMO, and we lost the people because it wasn't anything other than they wanted to stay in that small company environment, and they were concerned that a large company would lose that. And then you have that reduced R&D spending. As you consolidate, you look to cut. And I think then, of course, you have the unknown. Do the patients and the physicians really benefit from consolidation? At the end of the day, the customer is the most critical element here, and Do we benefit? Do the practitioners and the patients benefit? How does it change that competitive landscape? Consolidation is good, but does it cause less players, less investments, uh, less people for us to measure and monitor? And then can the merge company's innovation really play out? So I have several questions here for this panel. My biggest challenge is 30 minutes. I know many of these people on this panel, and they could answer the one question in 30 minutes. So I've already told them, stick to the, stick to the points here. Um, but again, if you look at this panel and you look at this room and at 440 on, a long, on the first day, you can tell how lucky we are to have these type of people. We have Jeff George, our new person from Alcon, who did a great job today. Jeffrey, welcome. We have Bill Link, who really here not only started this great form of OIS, but is really the guru in ophthalmology. Ashley McAvoy from Johnson & Johnson. Ashley has a tremendous insight to what's occurred here in this environment. I've had many opportunities to interact with Ashley. And then David Pyatt, obviously the CEO of Allergan. He's just had a couple things recently to do. He's been not that busy. And then, um, and then Murthy, 
who has done a tremendous job at AMO and has come from a different industry, but really has just helped transform AMO into, into the leader from that perspective. So what I've decided to do is I've, I'm going to ask each person one question, and then from there I'm going to consolidate the questions because I think it's critical in a 30-minute period here that we get as much from these great minds as possible. So the first is for Jeff. Jeff, welcome to Ophthalmology. Your talk today was outstanding. I was proud that you didn't have an F uh, in, in ophthalmology when you were talking, so that's great from that end. Against the years of experiences you had at Novartis, what do you see as some of the similarities and some of the contrast between ophthalmology and other parts of the industries that you've known? You know, so I think thanks, um, first of all, Jim. Um, I guess what I would say on the similarities front, having worked uh, both in Novartis vaccines as well as Having worked in both uh, Novartis Vaccines and Novartis Pharma and then the past few years in, on the generic pharmaceutical side, uh, you know, when I look at pharmaceuticals, um, you know, in the therapeutic areas that Novartis Pharma is in, for example, or that we're in at Alcon, uh, you know, it starts with a real understanding of the mechanism of, of action and, and really understanding uh, the mechanisms of, of the disease. I think, you know, so there are many similarities across therapeutic areas from that perspective in terms of how we do research and, you know, a pathways-driven focus that you can take, you know, looking at some of the retina work that's being done now, uh, looking at the work we do in oncology. On the flip side, however, I think one of the things that makes ophthalmology such an awesome place to be, and, and for me, you know, more exciting than the other areas that I've worked with in healthcare, is the combination of both surgical uh, as well as pharmaceutical innovation. So the fact that we have so much that's going on on the surgical and med tech side, and at the same time uh, on the pharmaceutical side, makes this a really um, exciting uh, and innovative area of, of, of medicine. And I think, you know, related to that, the level of intimacy that we have with our customers as we do R&D, as we do development, particularly, again, on the surgical uh, equipment and medical device side, uh, is something that really differentiates uh, ophthalmology from a lot of other fields that I've seen. Not, you know, not that we're not working very closely with clinicians on the oncology side. Of course we are. Uh, but I think it's different to be in the operating room. Uh, you know, we just, I just came out of discussions and, uh, with a group, uh, an ocular surface disease uh, of some of the leaders in that space, like Ed Holland and, um, and, and others. And then after that with Praveen Dougal and uh, a number of folks, Peter Kaiser and others on the VitRet side. And the kind of discussions that we have, you know, I, I think, frankly, are just more fascinating uh, than in other therapeutic areas that I've worked. Thank you. David, first off, congratulations. The number four rated CEO across the globe in a Harvard Business Review. Congratulations. I'll find the other three and have them eliminated. Um, <laughs> the Italian in me will take them out. Um, Allergan has built a solid reputation as a true innovator and a technology leader in both ophthalmology and dermatology. Uh, how do you strengthen that? How do you protect that? How do you protect that innovation going forward in this environment today? Well, I think at the end of the day, um, it's all about investing in innovation. And, uh, of course, that's what we're all looking for. And, uh, you know, when I have uh, worked with uh, Bill Link over the years, he always talks about the secret sauce. And I think for me, it always is founded on a really intimate knowledge of um, the physician's needs and, above all, the patient's needs. So it starts there. And then you have to really sort through and say, um, I think the most important um, resource allocation decision for a CEO is where do you put your money? And if you're running a multi-functional business, i.e., you know, in our case, five different 
pillars, as we call them. You know, how much money do we allocate to ophthalmology versus, say, Botox, therapeutic, or medical aesthetic? Starts there. But more pertinently, within ophthalmology, then uh, where are the biggest opportunities? Uh, where do you think the science is developing? In our case, um, on the pharma side, we've really focused on retina, um, dry eye, and uh, glaucoma. And in the case of glaucoma, we're probably a little bit counter-cyclical compared to others, although, due respect, there's some other people uh, in the room here that are, you know, that's their company, is glaucoma research. I think one other overlay, um, echoing a little bit of what Jeff George said, is the interplay between pharmaceuticals and device. And uh, despite any popular belief that I turn my back on ophthalmic uh, devices, and Jim Mazur wouldn't know the slightest what I'm talking about, um, we you know, have a, a keen interest in how does it work. And really two examples. One would be the acquisition uh, of the technology in what is inside uh, um, Osiodex today, so microimplant. And, uh, you know, clearly that was initially uh, with the thought to retina. But, of course, when you uh, discover a great new platform, then you can start applying things elsewhere. And uh, hence we're working on a, a microimplant for glaucoma. And uh, if we thought making Osiodex was difficult, uh, this one uh, requires more than a Swiss Army knife, and uh, I used to work for Novartis, so I know all about Swiss Army knives. And in fact, my son used to work for Victorinox for five years. But you need something really cool to make that stuff. So I think this is a very, very inter interesting uh, interplay. And I suppose one could add, we're not in it diagnostics, but uh, that that's going to be another very interesting marriage of technology. Okay. Thank you. Ashley, you know, J&J bought a contact lens company in 1981, deeply rooted into that industry. Um, what role does business development play now in, in the ophthalmic cycle at J&J? Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks, Jim. So, uh, well, I'd say that new business development plays a, a significant role in our growth agenda for Johnson & Johnson. It's probably no surprise over the past 20 years, it's comprised about 50% of our growth agenda. Um, and the world of eye health is, we have a very long history in eye health, from intraocular lenses and cataract surgery to pharmaceuticals with partners like Santine to spectacle lenses, as you may remember, um, and then a little contact lens company that grew up over the past 30 years. And there's really multiple ways that we access innovation. And the first, obviously, is many of you have maybe perhaps worked with our J&J Development Corps, which is one of the longest-running venture companies um, out that we've got two equity investments, one in Power Vision, which we're rooting for you, and uh, Revision Optics. Um, but we also recently opened innovation centers in California, London, uh, soon to be Shanghai by the end of this month, where we really want to access the world's laboratories to co-create, to, to David's point, really superior outcomes. So those are the mechanisms that we really access innovation. Um, and, I, and I'll use Vision Care as, as really our last example. It's a little company. It was one of our most successful acquisitions in J&J history grew up to be a, a $3 billion company, um, and obviously through many, many years of strategic partnerships, whether it be in optics, material science, drug delivery mechanisms, accessing the, the thought leaders to help us create value. Thanks. Bill, what, do you, what kind of guidance do you give your young entrepreneurs as they're, as they're, you know, you just saw one be acquired by Alcon, what kind of advice do you give them as they go into a larger structure as the role of innovation? 
really encourage him <clears throat> to get it right the first time and only spend about two months and a million dollars and then sell for you know, 250. So that's, <laughs> Good return. that's kind of the guidance. The, you know, the, in a more serious note, you know, when I was uh, fortunate enough to be involved early with AMO and then with Chiron, building Chiron Vision, we acquired uh, 10 to 12 companies. And I really learned how hard it was to deliver the value, capture the value, and bring it in-house. And so those learnings, I've hoped that we take now to this outsourced R&D stage that we're at so we honestly think carefully about building value and how do we have to organize, how do we have to behave, how do we, what kind of systems do we want, what kind of people do we want, so we can deliver that value, because that's really our exit strategy. Sometimes it's an IPO, which is often an intermediate financing strategy, not a long-term standalone strategy. So delivering the value, laying that out in projects, taking it seriously. And Murthy, you know, you've done a great job. If you looked at the recent financial results of AMO, an outstanding result, you've definitely been an upgrade from the previous CEO. Um, so, uh, what are you doing? How are you making sure that that innovation process continues within a structure, within a large entity? How, how are you continuing that innovation process? Uh, well, when I joined AMO, it was uh, pretty apparent that there was a lot of passion and capability in the organization, a pretty long history in ophthalmology, and uh, it became pretty apparent that the business uh, could grow uh, quite rapidly uh, with, uh, with the assets and the talent we had. Uh, so, you know, we, we went about uh, innovating in multiple areas. It wasn't just in R&D. Uh, there was a significant uh, focus on commercial innovation. And um, uh, beyond that, uh, we, we spent a lot of time uh, getting our R&D productivity up and getting the, uh, the pipeline flowing at a healthy rate. So with that, our base business started growing uh, at a pretty attractive uh, rate, and we felt that uh, given where we wanted to take the company, we had to supplement that with some strategic acquisitions, uh, not just uh, for the growth rate, but to add the right capabilities to AMO. And, uh, you know, when the opportunities came, like Optimedica, we were pretty excited with the talent, uh, with the capabilities, and we felt that uh, uh, just beyond short-term growth, uh, that these acquisitions would help us sustain our innovation engine for the mid to long term. So there's a number of factors uh, but I thought that the, uh, the basic pieces were always there at AMO, and uh, we just had to execute uh, towards a clear strategy. Great. Well done. Congratulations. So tag team here. I'm going to ask uh, Jeff and David on this one. So Jeff, why don't you start off? How do you prevent a post-acquisition R&D brain drain since many inventors prefer that singularly focused startup mentality? You know, I, th I think, first of all, what I'd say is we haven't always gotten it right. Um, I think it's really important to make sure that we're continuing to provide freedom for the entrepreneurs who've built companies. Um, you know, I, I, I was with Ron Kurtz uh, last week in Southern California where you are, and I think, you know, the LensX work that we've done and how we've integrated that into our cataract refractive suite and, you know, really an outstanding femtosecond laser platform, but also providing autonomy for, you know, a lot of the teams working on that. Um, you know, Wavelight's another example where we tried to cordon off um, to provide enough entrepreneurial freedom to not, you know, uh, stifle the innovation that was happening historically. Uh, and I think, you know, the other thing is, you know, from a brain drain perspective, you've got to make sure that you keep the talent. So, you know, things, you know, we, we, I think 
we're all familiar with leveraging uh, milestones, leveraging earnouts uh, to keep people involved, to keep people engaged. But I think a lot of it really comes down to culture and making people feel like they can be, you know, themselves and be entrepreneurial in a bigger organization. I mean, Alcon uh, this year will, you know, be north of $11 billion in sales. It's a big organization. Uh, but that doesn't mean we don't have a lot of pockets of, of real entrepreneurialism, but they have to be nurtured. Um, and sometimes you have to look at them from a different uh, standpoint uh, organizationally and structurally uh, to protect the innovation that's happened so you don't squash it. David? I would agree with uh, the same uh, thoughts. You know, clearly when we buy companies, we want to buy not just the technology or the patents or the assets, but the knowledge of the people. I think the, the way I would answer the question maybe slightly differently would be to step back and say, well, sure, we'd like to keep those really key people, but be uh, realistic. How possible is that if you think whatever the time frame may be, two, three, four years down? And, of course, that may be interlaced with whatever uh, rather important moments could be in the passage of that product, whether it's the next iteration or getting a PMA approved or an NDA approved or whatever. So I think you need to step back and be very honest with yourself and say, to the degree there's a likelihood certain people leave, how do you transfer that knowledge to people who have been with the company, i.e. Allergan or Alcon, for a long period of time? And, uh, and usually, in my experience, if you kind of mix cultures in a harmonious way, not you've got to do it our way and, uh, or no way, um, you can learn from each other. And uh, so I think really it's knowledge transfer and realism about what the team will look like uh, at some point, two, three, four years in the future. Ashley and Murthy, as you look at acquisitions, how much true value do you base on the innovation capabilities of the organization versus the other parts of the organization? Ashley? Yeah, so I, I think what's important for us that we consider, and again, I was hearing this with my colleagues is really about sustainability. So obviously you're looking at that first generation technology that excites us and how relevant is that. Um, but it's always about the robustness of the pipeline, um, again, for, for sustainability. And at the same time, many, many times we're not just buying, it's not just about the IP and just the talent, it really is about the capability. Many times we're going to very deliberately acquire capability and, and maintain that capability. Murthy? Uh, so, yes, uh, you know, I would agree with Ashley. Uh, uh, acquiring those capabilities is important. Um, we need to bring fresh talent in. You know, in large organizations, uh, you need some way to refresh yourselves from time to time, and one way to do that is through acquisitions. So we look for the quality of talent and what it can add uh, to the apparent organization. But beyond that, uh, the pipeline, as Ashley said, is really critical. The question is the people that are joining you together with the organization that you have uh, can they drive sustained innovation in the organization with new thinking, new ways of doing R&D, new ways of interacting with a customer? And, uh, you know, in many respects, you, you put all of that into uh, assessing the value. Bill, we, you know, I watched the charts that Jeff had and somebody else had about acquisitions, now IPOs. Give me your perspective. If you, we're sitting here a year from now, do you think you're going to see more acquisitions, or do you think that appetite, regardless of what's happened over the last two weeks in the market for IPOs, is going to be greater? I think it'll still be a blend. Um, but, you know, the primary um, way of delivering 
uh, nourishing growth and supporting growth in large organizations is a combination of internal uh, innovation and external innovation. And so that balance is real. And periodically, the IPO window opens up, and it's wonderful. Uh, in, you know, for investors, it's wonderful for the companies and the teams. It can be very good for the investors in the, at the private stage as well. So it's just another nice, appropriate vehicle. But we cannot depend on that. You saw the cycle. It's a cycle. And guess what? When we finance a company, we have to be committed to finishing. And we can't rely on taking the company public. We may have the opportunity, and it may add value there and give more sustainability and the ability to scale differently, blah, blah, blah. But my view is that we've got to have a rational plan to keep the company properly financed till there's enough value created that we can deliver value you know, usually through revenue growth to the acquirer, and then, as I said, honestly deliver it, not, not have it be a cluttered asset that is hard to get your arms around and deliver, including the people. And it's especially hard at the people level, just to, to weigh in on that. The, you know, one of the beauties we have in the small organizations is we can debate on Monday decide Monday afternoon and do on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And large organizations can't be that nimble. And so that we've got to have a way of blending and isolating appropriately, protecting, etc. And I think it, it takes progressive thinking uh, at the leadership level in the large organizations and some discipline, the willingness to allow failure and mistakes because companies begin to settle in if failure is punished, et cetera, those kind of things. So I'm a little bit on a soapbox here, but it's, it's especially challenging at the people level. And if we can't get the people from a small organization into a large organization and have them for a period of time, like David said, be productive and satisfied and nourished there, then it's hard to deliver the value. So Jeff and Ashley, let's take part of Bill's question there. How do you, in a lar running large companies, large companies, you both are running extremely large companies, how do you not allow that to happen in an acquisition? How do you keep that innovation process going in a large company, in the challenge that Bill just said? Ashley, I'll let you go first. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's always, I'd say, the art and the science, and there's always that delicate balance. I'll start with talent first. And... And sometimes you get it wrong. And I, and I think we've learned that you really have to be very honest, intellectual honesty around matching your talent strategy to the business strategy. So oftentimes we'll acquire technology with a brilliant entrepreneur who really that entrepreneur just wants to get going on the next generation. And yet the business strategy for value capture is about geographic scale up. And so you know, making sure that we have the right skill set is kind of number one. Um, and I'd say number two, a couple things. One, you know, I've, we've learned from, from some of the sins of our past, of monstrous acquisitions. So, so good luck with you around. The supply chains can be really persnickety. And when you're trying to take a very complicated process and do a tech transfer to another, another asset base, we tend to very much underestimate that. And then you have to bring R&D experts in to go solve and as we all know, we need high-quality, reliable customer service, strong process capability. But at the same time, we need to be building a really robust market-leading pipeline. And so I guess what I would really learn is making sure you've got 
distinct separate teams to handle those business challenges that you're making sure you're moving with the market to create value. Jeff? You know, I, I don't have a whole lot to add to that. I, I would say, you know, I, I think what's important inside of a big organization is to be willing to have um, and, and to really enable uh, different ecosystems of talent in different areas, right? If I look at the work we do on the vitro retinal side and the collaboration that we have with surgeons there, uh, you know, it's a different type of work that we're doing, you know, pre-POC or on the POC, on, you know, POC side on the pharma development side. Um, you know, and I think, you know, the different, I, I look for different leaders for different, uh, different types of work, right? If I look at Frank Lavalier, who was speaking up here uh, on stage, who's leading a lot of our efforts with Google X and collaborating with them in California, uh, he's a different type of leader than some of our other R&D leaders that may be more, uh, you know, uh, I mean, he's very data-driven, but he's also extremely collaborative, very close with um, the technology side. He's a PhD in physics, so understands the optics really well, works, you know, hand-in-hand uh, with manufacturing and recognizing how important, you know, that, that from technical development through to clinical development to scale up on manufacturing, it's critically to be involved in that. Whereas, you know, I'll go for more hardcore scientists on the R&D side, on on the pharma side if I'm looking at, you know, bets that we're making in the retinal space. So I think, you know, this notion of being willing to have different ecosystems is really important. I look at, you know, my time, I spent, you know, five and a half years at the helm at Sandoz, and, you know, the sort of day-to-day -day street fight of generics is very different from biosimilars. And we had to create an entirely different ecosystem to build a business that when I took over was, you know, 50, 75 million. This year will be 650 million with the same three products. But the big difference is we went from having nothing, you know, in phase one or phase three or even preclinic to having a very robust, you know, portfolio by the time I left of eight phase three clinical trials in that area. But it was a totally different type of scientist and type of approach that we had that was a lot more pharma-like. Uh, than, you know, the street fight that is uh, your retail generics. So I think, you know, that notion of ecosystems and enabling different leaders and different talent to thrive in different ways is really important inside of a big company. Murthy and David, you've both made a lot of acquisitions in your tenures as leadership here. And so Scott Whitcup leads your R&D effort. Leonard Borman leads your R&D effort. In comes this new technology, this company. How do you allocate the R&D resources now that you have really two companies coming in? How do you make that allocation decision, David? Well, clearly as part of the acquisition model, if you uh, don't adequately fund, uh, assuming it's an R&D-led organization, you um, allocate sufficient R&D resources, then uh, you're full. Um, so you've clearly got to carve that out and uh, and as you bring it in, um, if it requires a change, sometimes you can underestimate difficulty. Um, you've got to see it through, and that means sometimes you've got to take it out of the rest of the R&D portfolio, assuming that you, know, you don't just add, because uh, I always say in management, adding's really easy. It's when you say, no, it's not an add, it's an add and a subtract. That's where you really get people's uh, attention. You don't really need managers just to add, right? At least that's my view. So I think realism and uh, really making sure, and of course, to some degree, you're on the hook, both with uh, the public markets and hopefully the board of directors as well, saying we approved something for a big sum of money. How is it working? Murthy? Well, when you make the acquisition, uh, you're justified on the basis of uh, certain investments and certain returns uh, over time. And, uh, you know, the critical thing with the acquisition is, uh, you know, you've done your due diligence. Uh, the company is now part of your organization. You reassess uh, where they are with respect to the uh, strategic imperatives. 
and very quickly, you know, in the case of Optimedica, for example, from day one, we ring-fenced the budgets, not just for the projects that people were working on, but for second, third generation, potentially game-changing ideas. Now, that does a few things. A, it keeps the team focused. You don't create this vacuum of what's going to happen to me now as part of this new company. Am I still going to have a project? What am I going to work on next? So you've created a pathway uh, for people to be uh, focused not just today, but with a view as to what's coming down the pike tomorrow. So that's pretty important to ring fence it. And once the team makes sufficient progress towards the objectives, then you start rolling it in into the broader portfolio process within the organization. But in the uh, early years, my bias is just to ring fence it. So my time's short. I'm going to ask real quickly, uh, all of you, if you can, in 10 seconds. The customer is the most important person still at a company. How do you translate acquisitions, and they're not a concern that the innovation is gone when you make an acquisition? Ashley. Uh, you know, I'd say in, in unmet, serving unmet needs is continued to be rewarded no matter what. And uh, an example we have of that, I'll tell you, is you know, a cell therapy program we're working at at J&J uh, that is to what Jeff was referencing, surgical uh, intervention, and so making sure you're doing good sound procedural development, having really good breakthrough device delivery with cell therapy, and that convergence is what's really going to go create the value. Uh, all of it is done, obviously, by knowing the customer best. David? I'd answer the question. I think most acquisitions are driven probably by one product. Uh, obviously, there's follow-ons that Wynn looks at, sort of a little bit of uh, you know, optimistic eye maybe. So really focus on that product and understand all of its nuances and make sure that it's adapted exactly and delivered the way customers want it and need it. Bill? It's responding. It's how, how quickly can we respond to a question, to a need at the customer level, and hopefully that's not interrupted as there's a handoff, you know, from, say, a privately owned uh, standalone company to a larger organization. Jeff? I think keeping physicians and surgeons that have been involved with a company working closely in the early stages of development and not just turning it over to the in-house engineering crew that may be further away from the operating room, which is a mistake that I've seen, you know, made in the past and I think we've made also at Alcon in the past. So really cultivating those relationships with the key opinion leaders and, and surgeons that have made the company what it is. Murthy? Well, startup companies tend to be extremely uh, customer-focused. They're working on a very specific problem. And, uh, you know, it's important to keep those connections, uh, that uh, closeness to the customer. Uh, but also, you know, from a commercial perspective, it's really critical how you integrate the organizations to ensure there's no loss of intimacy. Because uh, what the startup company was targeting in terms of customer reach may be a little different than what you're trying to do. You might be trying to leverage that for something broader. And in doing so, you've got to be careful not to drop the essence of uh, the relationships that the startup company had developed. Let's give this group a real round of applause. Thanks again for visiting with the OIS podcast. To find last week's conversation involving Google and Alcon, make sure you go to ois.net. We'll have articles, videos, and podcasts from the Ophthalmology Innovation Summit in Chicago. OIS is now accepting applications for presenting companies. Share your technology and clinical data with over 800 industry executives, investors, and key opinion-leading ophthalmologists. 
To be considered for the Ophthalmology Innovation Showcase, apply online at www.ois.net forward slash application.